0: All right. Um, Well, we should figure out, now that we've lost this class um, on Monday, we're way behind, which means that we'll figure out uh, what to drop. Um, Would you be devastated not to finish, Roxana after your investment in it? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. Sometimes it's a, it's a mistake that people make playing poker, which is what's called throwing good money after bad. That is, it's what's called the sunk cost fallacy. Anyone know what that is? Yeah. What is it, Andrea? In
1: poker, I'm pretty sure it's when like, you check and then someone else bets and then you bet, try, and
0: bluff. So, like, <laughs> I love the idea that that's a sunk cost fallacy, but no, it's a term from economics. Um, throwing good money after bad is the poker term and what it means do. Any of you play poker? You do? Okay. How do you do when you play? I play
1: very well.
0: Do you really? You mean you check and then you bluff?
1: No.
0: I, no. No, when someone <laughs> checks, you know they're bluffing.
1: It depends. It depends.
0: Okay. Poker's one of those interesting games. It's actually a version of what we did with writing down 0.7 or whatever. everyone else wrote down, which is that the general rule among good poker players is you should almost never bluff like once a night if you're a really good poker player. But if you're a really good poker player playing poker players who are not really good poker players, but you don't know they're not really good poker players, you'll be creamed because they'll bluff and you'll believe them because good poker players almost never bluff. And so you have to figure out how good the other poker players are as well because if they're bad, then you have to... It's like putting down a higher number as the 0.7 number, because if they're likely to be the kind of people who will, be, who will put down 50 rather than 35, then you should not put down 2 rather than, thir- than let's say, 28. And, but if they are the kind of people who will put down 35 or 21 or 14, then you always have to go lower and lower and lower. So you have to know what the other poker players are like. And that's why a lot of poker playing is acting. Like, good poker players will act as though they're bad poker players so that people will think that they're bluffing when they're not bluffing. And bad poker players are basically bad actors. They will um, bluff all the time pretending that they have something that they don't. So is that your experience? (coughs) Yes? Sometimes? Okay, maybe we should play some time. <laughs> no, not really. I lost so much money as an undergraduate playing. The, no, there was a there was a kid, he was a year ahead of me, and he was actually paying his tuition out of taking people like me in poker games. Um, he was insanely good. I He claimed not to cheat, which I think I believed because he was just so good, but he could cheat, and... He showed us, one reason I think, maybe this, maybe this was like triple acting. One reason that I think he didn't cheat was that he showed us how good he was at cheating. He was amazingly good at dealing from the bottom of the deck, but he's also just insanely good with cards. And he, one night when not enough people showed up in the college card room, which had nice little, you know, it was atmospheric, and it had nice little small bulbs, um, you know, those five-watt bulbs all in sconces all around the room. And so there was no one there, and he was kind of bored, so he just showed us that he could break bulb after bulb after bulb by flipping cards across the room at the bulbs, and he would always hit them, and they would always shatter. So there was, like, glass and, and um, cards scattered all around the place when we left that night, and I regarded it as his fault and there was one time when we were just playing for fun when he just told me what he was going to deal me and then he dealt me what he told me he was going to deal me and this was after lots of shuffling and cutting the cards and so on and he dealt me exactly what he wanted to deal me so anyhow he made, he paid his way through school and he actually it's actually a sad story because he bought a sports car and then crashed it and died so with his poker playing Winning, he not only paid his tuition but had enough money to buy a sports car and then he crashed it and died. So sad. It is sad. It was a sad story. It was shocking at the time. Do you know what the sunk cost fallacy is? No. Okay. So the sunk cost fallacy is what in poker is called throwing good money after bad. And it means that because you've already put some money into a project, that is, it's a cost that you've already sunk into it, you should not walk away from the project because if you walk away from that project, you've just lost that money. And that is said to be a fallacy because the idea would be that once you've put the money in, it's no longer your money. And if the thing is crashing and burning, then putting more money into it in an attempt to save money that do you know what it is, Jimmy? The sunk cost fallacy? Oh yeah. So Define.
1: It's like you give things like value by how much invest how much you've invested in. Mm-hmm. So like for example, like say you have a house. And it's like really, really bad. So you invest a lot of money into it and it just it's like unfixable. But you still keep going at it because you've already invested so much money that you have no choice but to keep investing money into it.
0: Yeah, because somehow you made it yours, which means that the money that you've put into it is still your money somehow. And it's not your money. You've spent that money, but you regard it as your money, so you try to save you try to save the money that you've already put into it. So that's called the sunk cost fallacy. It's the reverse of an interesting fallacy in backgammon. Do any of you play backgammon? See, we're getting ready to read The Gambler. If we're not going to read *Roxana*, we'll read The Gambler. Dostoevsky's The Gambler. In backgammon, so none of you play backgammon. So another person I know is the world champion in backgammon. He used to take me in high school. And he then became the backgammon world champion and made a living, made three or $400,000 a year playing backgammon. His name was Roger Lowe. But then people got better than him. At any rate, in backgammon, what happens is the game itself is very simple, but the trick in the game is the doubling cube. Does anyone know what the doubling cube is? Okay, so if you're playing backgammon, you, p- you play for money, and let's say you play for a dollar. And whoever wins the game plays for a dollar. But if they're winning, they can offer to double the stakes to you. And Anyone can. The doubling cube at the beginning of the backgammon game is right in the middle of the board, and anyone can offer to double the stakes. If you don't accept the offer, you lose. So if someone is winning, they will offer to double the stakes, and you can either accept their offer to double the stakes, in which case you're now going to be playing for $2 instead of $1, or you can refuse, you can say, no, I'm losing, I don't want to double the stakes, and then you simply lose the dollar. If they offer, if you accept the offer to double the stakes, then you are in control of the doubling cube from until its next use. So let's say you're losing, and your opponent offers to double the stakes by putting the double doubling cube on two, and you accept the offer to double the stakes, so now you're paying for $2 instead of $1, now they can't do it again. You are in control of the cube. And if suddenly you start winning, you can offer now to double the stakes again. So it'll be for $4 instead of $2, which they can accept or refuse. And if they accept it, they get the doubling cube and so on. It can go up to 64 times. So that is 2 to the 6th. So the doubling cube can change hands six times. So... What naive backgammon players think is you should never accept. That. <laughs> That's a naive backgammon player, thank you. What naive backgammon players think is you should never accept. Naive backgammon players who think they're shrewd think you should never accept an offer to double the stakes because you're losing. And that would be throwing good money after bad. You're in the middle of a game, but the other person is winning, and now they want to double the stakes. Why should you accept that when you're already losing? You wouldn't. You wouldn't accept a game where you were handicapped. Why should you accept doubling the stakes when you're handicapped? Anyone know why? Why? Why and when it's the right thing to do? So what you have to balance is a sure loss against a possible loss. So let's say that someone is in a position where they have a 53% chance of winning and you have a 47% chance of winning. Then if you don't accept, they should offer to double the stakes because they have a 53% chance of winning at twice the the amount of money. You should accept the offer because instead of a sure loss of a dollar you have a 53% of a loss of two dollars, and a 47 percent chance of winning two dollars. So, if you work out the expected utility, accepting the double, the doubling, is um, has a greater expected utility for you. Your losses will be less if you accept the doubling over time than if you don't. Plus, you then control the doubling cube, and if the game swings your way your chances of winning more are even higher. So it's actually the, the trick in backgammon, the moves to make are easy. That is, there's a really there's a simple algorithm for figuring out the best moves in backgammon and computers will always defeat humans in backgammon or will never lose to humans um, any more than by pure chance um, in the same way that computers can play tic-tac-toe. It's a solved game. I believe backgammon is a solved game. Do people know what the term solved game means? What's it mean? It means that um, all of the possible
1: winning scenarios have been found. So there's no, like,
0: in any game, there's a defined best play. Yeah, from the start. So you know Tic-Tac-Toe is a solved game, right? You can always at least draw in tic-tac-toe, if you if you go first or if you go second, you can always at least draw because everyone knows what the best move is. What's the best first move? No, no. <laughs> middle, <laughs> X in the middle. Yeah, we should play poker. X in the or maybe you're bluffing. X in the middle. Yeah. So, and um, then the second move has to be O in the corner. It can't be O on one of the sides. So that's a solved game. Checkers was fairly recently solved, which means that a computer will always win if it has the first move in checkers because there is a winning line that no matter what the second player does, even if the second player is also a computer, the first player will always have the move that will lead to a winning line. Chess and Go are not solved games, but it's believed they're soluble, Um, solvable, but but they're not solved yet. Backgammon is a solved game as far as the moves go. I believe it's a solved game as far as the moves go. With dice, it's a little trickier because there's chance, but there's always a best move. And I believe it's solved what the best move is in every possible position in backgammon with every possible roll of the dice. However, I do not think the doubling cube is solved. That is because the fact that you now control the doubling cube and that interacting with the position on the backgammon board makes things much more complex and much more interesting for that reason. Okay, so the sunk cost fallacy is that... You've already put money into something, so you think of it as different because it was your money that you put into it, so you have a special relationship to it, so you keep throwing good money after bad when you should just walk away because once you've lost that money, it's not your money anymore. But the sunk cost fallacy is treating it as though it is your money and as though the thing that you bought with it is therefore in a special relationship to you. And that is a fallacy that leads people. It's called a fallacy because people lose money doing it. So you've sunk some cost into Roxana. This is where this all comes from. And uh, so the question is, can you walk away? Always. <laughs> Always. All right. Okay, so we, we won't do Roxana. Let us look at, you guys read the um, Mandeville, the um, um, Adam Smith, And the Kant, right? I'm so glad to hear that. Okay, so I wanted to look at a moment in Mandeville, which is the thing that Adam Smith... Oh, and you also read uh, the scene from Macbeth, yes? So how does the invisible hand come up in the Macbeth? Anyone? why am I not putting this All right. why don't we just go to Mandible so let me just find it I thought I had it in a file did I distribute to you guys a file with Mandible on um, who takes the maybe I didn't on who takes the last um, serving in the dish I thought I did. Or I thought I told you to read it. All right. Let me see what I can find. Just one sec. If you go to Mandible on your computers, Okay, um, so if you go to Mandeville on your computers, you don't have to do this because I can read it for you, but it's, it's worth searching for this. Um, there is a comment that begins, envy is that baseness in our nature. So just search for that. It's the comment on the following lines from the poem. Envy itself and vanity were ministers of industry. So that's part of the Mandeville idea that envy and vanity, which are private vices, are public virtues. That is that... Actually, could you get the door, Gabby? Thank you. That as private vices, we all know that envy and vanity are bad things, right? You look at vain people and you roll your eyes. You look at envious people and you think that they are spiteful, and that their spite is both making other people feel bad and making them feel bad. We all know, we've heard from Aesop's fables from childhood, that it's bad to be envious, and we know that vanity is silly, that people who are proud of themselves... Does anyone know what vanity means in Latin, vanitas, literally what the word vanity means? It means emptiness. It's the same word as, well, we know it in the same word as vain. If you do something in vain, it means that your result is empty, You're, that what you've done um, produces an en- empty result. If you call someone vain, what it means is they're proud of something not real. They're puffed up like a balloon, and that is an image of vanity, is to be puffed up as though there's something there when there's nothing there. So envy itself and vanity were ministers of industry. How does that work? How are envy and vanity ministers of industry? Yeah.
1: Um, If you see someone else that has something that you want, you want that too, so that you can be as happy as them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, how does that cause industry? What does it make? How does that minister to industry? Uh, I guess there
1: would be like a higher demand for like the product, and then so more people would buy that product, and it like keeps the supply and demand going.
0: Yeah. So someone has the um, has has the iPhone X and or XS or whatever it is. X, is that what it is? XS? <laughs> is is there an iPhone XS? Am I or am I making that up? Yeah, yeah, I know, but it's yeah, it's, but it looks like XS. Yeah, I think that was that was witty of them. It just occurred to me. I know it's ten. It's like iOS ten, but or um, OS ten rather. But it's an X. So yeah, it's XS. It is witty of them. I have to get one. That's so great. Then I can show everyone. Look, XS. What? I wouldn't be surprised. There are a lot of very clever people Do you
1: think there. They're like, ha ha ha, we're going to play this really subtle pun on all these 11 year olds.
0: Yeah, but I also think that some people, they think some people will get this and they'll like it. Like you. Well, I didn't get it until just now. But yeah. <laughs> like all you guys. I got there. Yeah, I finally got there. Okay. Um, and that would make sense with the XR, right? It's like more would be the XR. And then. XS would be most. It's like you're heading towards XS with the XR, but then you can get to XS itself. That's great. And remember, Bataille, I'm sure they're thinking of Bataille because the notion of expenditure is praise of XS. How, God, they're clever. They're so good. All right. So other people have the iPhone 10 or the iPhone XS, so you want one. And the fact that other people have stuff makes you want it. So that's envy. And that's a minister of industry because what does it do for Apple?
1: They get to sell more iPhones.
0: Yeah, which means they get to produce more iPhones, which is good for, for China and for Foxconn, right? So they produce more iPhones because there's a demand for more iPhones. And so envy makes people buy iPhones, which gives other people jobs. And so, Steve Jobs. So, (laughs) sorry. Um, So that's that's how Envy becomes a minister of industry. How about Vanity? How is Vanity a minister of industry? Yeah. I mean,
1: in kind of the same vein of what um, we were talking about with Envy, like Vanity... Wanting to make yourself look good, yeah. kind of like has the same effect. Right. You want the iPhone XS because it's a status symbol and it makes you look good to yourself and
0: to others. Right. So envy is so vanity is the thing that will then spread through envy. So I have Air Jordans, so you want Air jo- Jordans. I have an iPhone XS, so you want an iPhone XS. I boast about it, making you envious. I want to make you envious by boasting. Why else do people boast? except to make other people envious. The 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 um, best way to take the wind out of someone's sails is not to be impressed by what they're boasting about, right? Notice that that's also a, a, the use of the word vanity. They're puffed up, it's only air. There's wind in their sails, but it's only wind. They're full of wind. So vanity in, is aimed at getting other people to be envious, And envy is aimed at getting the thing that allows you to be vain. So those two things are connected to each other. They're ministers of industry because then people are buying crap they don't want. And therefore, they're giving jobs to... I mean, sorry, not crap they don't want, crap they do want, but crap they don't need, which gives people jobs uh, making that stuff. Did I tell you what I learned about Nike's... I, th- no, I think I mentioned this in another class I learned this about the pairs yeah about the pairs yeah okay so there's industry there's a lot of industry and there are people making left shoes in Vietnam and right shoes in China and that gives jobs to those people so that's a good thing there are also ministers of industry how how else are they yeah Yeah. So if you're a little kid you're willing to shovel your neighbor's snow in on Monday in or even though it's even though school has been canceled, you're willing to shovel snow so you can make money that you can then spend on an iPhone or on an Xbox or something like that. So the industry is both the industry that demand produces which is people want more new stuff and so there's work for people to do, and the industry which creates that demand because people work in order to be able to afford to buy this stuff they don't actually need. So people buying stuff they don't need is good for society. That's what Mandeville is saying. Their darling folly, fickleness in diet, furniture, and dress, that strange, ridiculous vice was made the very wheel that turned the trade. So the fact that we talked about this last Wednesday, the fact or last Thursday, the fact that tastes are constantly changing and that people always want something new, hence the folly called fickleness... In diet, furniture, and dress, people always want to try new food. There are new restaurants, there are new crazes. There are new things, there are new styles. In food, in furniture, and dress, that's what makes Ikea possible, which otherwise you would think would be completely insane that something like Ikea should exist. All of that fickleness in diet, furniture, and dress, that strange, ridiculous vice That is fickleness, that strange, ridiculous vice. It was made the very wheel that turned the trade. So it's the gear that keeps the machine going. Fickleness is is the fact that people are constantly turning in their tastes keeps trade, keeps business, keeps the economy alive. Okay, and then Mandeville has this note. Envy is that baseness in our nature which makes us grieve and pine at what we conceive to be a happiness in others. So we think others are happy, and we grieve and pine in what we conceive to be a happiness in others. I don't believe there is a human creature in his senses arrived to maturity that at one time or other has not been carried away by this passion in good earnest. So, do you guys agree? Have you, You're you all human creatures in good sense in your maturity. Have you ever felt envy? You can cough. Okay, see, I'm glad you coughed rather than just raising your hands because he then goes on. And yet I never met with anyone that dared own he was guilty of it, but in jest. So, people basically say, no, 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 I, I, I'm not envious. Um, ha ha, yeah, I guess I really, really want... That person's really hard job as senator. Yeah, as though that's what I want. Wait, so are
1: we envious of like material goods or like
0: just in general? Of anything. And definitely, con- I think it's harder to admit that you're envious of something like material. Because if you're
1: envious yeah. of somebody else's like happiness or like okay, yeah, but, like, that's easier to admit than like
0: that you're
1: I'm envious en- of her yellow converse.
0: But are you? <laughs> okay so probably he's talking more about material goods but it would extend just psychologically it would extend to envying someone's life this is not my beautiful oh you guys don't know who talking heads are right do you Heard of the talking
1: heads.
0: not the talking heads talking heads that's a crucial distinction the band the band yeah, yeah okay so Talking Heads are like one of the two great bands of the of New Wave, and you actually have heard songs. David Byrne was their lead singer, so you know who he is. Saint Vincent, he did an album with her. God, you guys are just not up to date. Come on, folks, it's nineteen ninety. Goddamn. All right, Talking Heads is totally great. Do you like them?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so and so now. All right. I envy you your naivete. So, there's, there's a song that goes, eh, it's it's worth doing. Can you find, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the song on YouTube. Oh, I'll find it for you. Whatever. Talking Heads for Oh, same as it ever was. What song is it? I believe it's called and it, no, once in a lifetime. Yeah. Here. You know it? Yeah. So this is uh it's partly a song about envy. But I'm not sure we'll get to the. Okay, YouTube, where are we? There we go. Is familiar to people at all? Okay, so the way you got there was through envy. That that would be Mandeville's point. You may find all these things, but these are all conventionally good things, and convention in a sense is telling you what to want. It is the marketing or the inculcation or the creation of desires. There's a essay, a famous essay by Jean Baudrillard called The Ideological Genesis of Needs. It's one of those essays where the title is Ultimately All You Need and what he is essentially he's, he's, he's basing this to some extent on Marcel Mose's The Gift and on Bataille and the have you read it? You're nodding. The Ideological Genesis of Needs is essentially that there are actually very 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 few real needs that people have but their belief in their needs is something that the society that they live in inculcates in them. So if you say something like, I really need those converses, or I really need that iPhone, you know you don't, but there are things that you think you need that you also don't really need. And... The So, what happens is that society, especially capitalist society, convinces people, creates them to think in certain ways and to regard certain things as necessities. And those necessities then are what the market will sell them. And so, that's a version of what Mandeville is saying. So... Envy is that baseness in our nature which makes us grieve and pine at what we conceive to be a happiness in others. I don't believe there's a human creature in his senses arrived to maturity that at one time or other has not been carried away by this passion in good earnest. And yet I never met with anyone that dared own he was guilty of it. But in jest that we are so generally ashamed of this vice is owing to that strong habit of hypocrisy by the help of which we have learned from our cradle to hide even from ourselves the vast extent of self-love and all its different branches. So here Mandeville is giving us a theory of hypocrisy, where hypocrisy is always a puzzle. Why are people hypocritical? Ambrose Bierce, whose definition of wealth I gave you before, did I give you his definition of hypocrite? He says that hypocrisy is a very, very strange thing because someone who acts as though he, um, who, who acts contrary to what he really believes gets the benefit of, how does it go? Acting contrary to what he really believes. No, it's, it's, Bierce is so good that I should actually give it to you. I gave you some Bierce, but I didn't give you this. Devil... Because this is the very thing that Bierce is also wondering about. So, hypocrite, is this? Yes. Hypocrite. Noun. One who, professing virtues that he does not respect, secures the advantage of seeming to be what he despises. So, that's the paradox of hypocrisy, is that if you're a hypocrite, you pretend to be something that you have contempt for, and everyone thinks that you're this being, everyone believes you to be a being that you yourself would find contemptuous. So, so being a hypocrite seems to be the opposite of vanity. Vanity is where you want people, you, you, you say you're different and you want people to respect you for things that you don't really have but wish you did, um, To be a hypocrite is to get the respect of those you loathe because they respect the kind of thing that you have contempt for. So hypocrisy is actually a puzzle. It's a moral puzzle about human behavior. Now, what you can say is, no, hypocrites, they have reason for being hypocrites because they want stuff without earning it virtuously, so they pretend to be virtuous when they're not. So you... Propose a law in the U.S. Senate criminalizing gay behavior, but then it turns out that you get caught engaging in gay behavior. So that's hypocrisy. So why did you propose a law if you're gay yourself? This has happened several times. Why do you propose a law if you're gay yourself? Because by seeming to be homophobic, you get the homophobia vote, and that keeps you in the Senate. So there are reasons to be hypocritical. However, the what Mandeville is saying and what Bierce is saying is that hypocrisy nevertheless is a moral moral paradox because it seems to come from the cradle. And then he goes on, that we are so generally ashamed of this vice, that is envy or vanity is owing to that strong habit of hypocrisy by the help of which we have learned from our cradle to hide, even from ourselves, the vast extent of self-love and all its different branches. So hypocrisy is pretending that you are not a figure of self-love. It is impossible man should wish better for another than he does for himself. So do you agree with that? That it's impossible that someone should wish better for another than he does for himself. That's the very cynical, but Mandeville would say, very clear-sighted claim that he's making. It is impossible. Man should wish better for another than he does for himself. So what do you think? True or not? If you really thought it was so true, you wouldn't say
1: so.
0: Well, Mandeville has the vanity of thinking well of himself for for saying hard truths, right? He's kind of the Jordan Peterson of seventeen hundred. <laughs> uh oh, uncomfortable silences. Yeah, proof. Is
1: he talking about um better off in like a tangible sense? Or just like 'cause you can make the argument that like altruism and wanting better for others is like something aimed at making you feel better. Like yeah. it's like a moral superiority thing. Yeah. And that's a good to you. Right. So if you include that then like he's right. But I think that that's it's hard to say that like you can't want because people do that with their kids all the
0: time. Yeah, but with their kids. Yeah. So in some sense with, <clears throat> with what they're regarding as their possessions and some reflection of them the question really is, is altruism possible? You're right. That's exactly the um, the way to rephrase it. Andrew.
1: Yeah, because I was trying to think of, like, the, the same thing where I was like, oh, who are people that, like, you are genuinely, like, proud of? And then I realized it's still, like, when you do, or when you are happy that someone else has something good, it's usually because you don't have pride in that. Yeah. And that's still your benefit.
0: Right. Yeah, it's like, hey, someone at Brandeis got into Harvard Law School. Wait, you're not happy for them? It's like that didn't make your, your, your day better? Envy. <laughs> Envy, right. Yeah, so, so there has to, it feels like there has to be a connection. If your roommate got, got some great award, you might feel happy for them because you can boast that they're your roommate. And we do do that. You know, I know the person who... But if it's just the fact that this happened, we don't feel this kind of general altruism. There always does seem to be some connection to ourselves. And the question is how important, how much? It's like the doubling cube question. How much does that connection to ourselves represent a return to us and how much is actually altruistic? They're connected to ourselves, but that's only 25% That's the catalyst that makes us proud of them, but we're really happy for them rather than... And 25% of that happiness is for ourselves, but 75% of that happiness is for someone else. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I was teaching something about this like in Turkey, and I just realized there isn't a Turkish word for There isn't. I mean, there is, you know, like it's altruism, which is... Yeah, okay, uh, you made, that makes sort of, the point, yeah. Yes, and then just... and it, There wasn't an English word for it until the 19th century either. Yeah. So it's it, it's clearly describing a hyperbolic uh, thing, that you know, like a
1: concept for which no one needed a word.
0: Yeah, do people know what altruism, etymologically, do you know what it means? It means... Um, the alt, it what it means is other otherism, really. It means a devotion to others. It's um, altrui or autrui in French, it's actually it's actually a misspelling of the French. And autrui means other people, means others in general. It's a singular noun, but it's singular in the way something like people or some, some collective noun is. So it's otherism, concern for others. And so the question, is altruism possible? This is actually a big question in evolutionary theory. Is altruism possible? And lots of evolutionary biologists say no, because the whole idea of evolution is it's survival of the fittest, it's competition for goods, it's just like capitalism. And altruists lose. They're losers. So is altruism possible? That's the question that Mandeville is raising right here. So what he says is, it is impossible man should wish better for another. other, that is, for autrui. Um, and here, autrui would mean not a particular other, like you're my best friend so I'm really genuinely happy for you that this happened. That would be an other. But to wish better for others than for oneself that would be pure altruism. Was Mother Teresa an altruist? No. <laughs> Why not? Uh, what was it? I heard, uh, like, wherever she did her work, like the orphanage, she would uh, keep medicine away from those so
1: they could suffer and, like, take, partake in, like the, it, like, the Catholic suffering of Christ. Yes. Yes. Like, was, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty nutty.
0: She, she has a same image, but she's terrible. Well,
1: By her logic, could you argue that she's doing that for the good of
0: the... I don't, I, I don't
1: think she's, like, but if she prioritizes, like, a spiritual wellness over, like, a physical wellness, is it like, in her I eyes, mean, She's she doing, like... It's like, I mean, yeah, sure, like, I intentions don't like were this good. Yeah, yeah, because she should it. a lot of other, like... But is it altruism if the outcome isn't... I don't
0: know. So the question is
1: because <laughs> you apply the argument to a lot of like, nasty situations where you're yeah. party, uh, like dictators etc yeah. So, yeah and it can go like some nasty that's idea. a slippery slope yeah, that's <laughs> definitely a slippery
0: slope well so what it could be is that people f- and what Mandeville is saying is people fool themselves into thinking that they're altruistic and Mother Teresa is for a lot of people a good example of that that she was probably not cynical um, consciously cynical But what she did was got world historical cred, Nobel Prize cred, for the amount of energy and time she put into comforting the sick, whereas it would have been a lot better to heal the sick rather than comfort them. Do
1: we know that it wasn't cynical, though?
0: No, we don't. I mean, there are people who think it was cynical, but I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt because that's the kind of generous person that I am. (laughs) I'm willing to give her the benefit of the doubt that it wasn't cynical, but it's, it is, practically speaking, it is objectively cynical, even if we don't know that it's subjectively cynical. And I think, actually, I think that's an important political point to make, that we usually think of our political enemies as objectively cynical. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that there are some objectively cynical people at the top of some governments in the world right now. But I think that their supporters are often, I mean, subjectively cynical. They know what they're doing is simply self-dealing. But I think a lot of their supporters are not subjectively cynical. They are, they are acting out of a mistaken kind of idealism, but the idealism is one in which they get a lot of credibility from those that they want credibility from and that's, I think, a whole lot about how political movements work, which is that... And how the, every everyone's complained about how Facebook amplifies your own political views, is it's really hard to disagree with your friends on Facebook. I mean, you can disagree with them uh, about stupid things, but it's really hard. Don't you find it hard to, to... Don't you find yourself censoring your comments when people are, like, really sure about some political position that you're not sure about? And... Don't you find yourself like deleting comments before posting them? Like you write a long comment pointing out that Bernie dot dot dot. We won't go. We won't say what the, what fills in the dot dot dot. But then you know that you'll just piss off a lot of people who will think worse of you. So so you don't post the comment, right? You know that Facebook records anything you type. So even if you don't post the comment, Zuckerberg knows that you didn't post that comment because you know, it's the a
1: more inflammatory way to do it. Is to confront them in real life.
0: So do you do that?
1: I did it once with a teammate, and it didn't go well. Okay. We've made up, but it
0: was... <laughs> but the thing about Facebook is the comments are... are All their friends read the comments. So yeah, it's like, like you're going against no a whole group of people.
1: For, like, me telling her yeah. that she's
0: wrong in the locker room. Yeah. Unless the NSA is listening. Which they are. Yeah, um, <laughs> but the But the point is, if you think of that Facebook dynamic where you are going to be your are subjectively being careful not to hurt the feelings but also I mean not to put yourself in a position where people will explain to you how how evil you are or how awful you are but and that is being objectively cynical but subjectively that's not what you're doing what you're doing subjectively is sustaining friendships let's say and the you may take political views because you believe in the good faith of those who actually hold those views and you may have contempt for people who don't hold those views because you don't believe in their good faith, but also because your friends have contempt for them, and therefore you're supposed to have contempt for them. So there is a difference between objective and subjective cynicism. And what Mandeville is saying is that objectively we're all cynical, even if we hide it from ourselves. It is impossible man should wish better for another than he does for himself, unless where he supposes an impossibility that himself should attain to those wishes. So you might wish better for another than yourself if you think that by wishing it for them, you will get it also. So this is a quick explanation of heaven, that if you hope that someone else gets to heaven and you pray for them, why do we pray for other people according to mandible? What will God do? Send us to heaven. God will say, what a good person praying for for her neighbor such a good person not praying for herself but for her neighbor I'm amazed by what a good creature I have created she's going to go to heaven as for her neighbor meh so that's again Mandeville is basically saying that's what we're secretly thinking what a good person praying for her neighbor so that himself should attain to those wishes and from hence we may easily learn after what manner this passion is raised in us in order to it, we're to consider, in order to do it, we're to consider first that as well as we think of ourselves so ill, we often think of our neighbor with equal injustice. So if you think badly about your neighbor, this is sometimes called the fundamental attribution error. Do people know what that is? It's actually, no one's sure if it's really true, it's hotly debated, but it's a concept in sociological psychology, fundamental attribution error. You'll notice it from now on. It's like the Dunning-Kroger effect. It's something that everyone likes to talk about. The fundamental attribution error is that if you do a shitty thing, it's because you're having a bad day. But if someone else does a shitty thing, I mean, you can think of this, any of you guys drive, drive around the Brandeis campus? you ever have to drive around the Brandeis campus? So when people are crossing the road yeah. from Usdan to Rab, to the Rab Steps, if you're driving, you're full of hatred for them because they're just being so obnoxious and selfish. But if you're crossing the street, it's because you don't really want to be doing this, but you're in a hurry and it's a bad day, and plus there are all these other people crossing, so you're not doing anything bad. Right? We. We've all been there. So that's the fundamental attribution error, that if someone else does something, it's because they're a bad person, and if you do the same thing, it's because it's situational and this is not ordinarily what you would do. This doesn't reflect on what kind of person you are. So that's what Mandeville is describing here. You can can look it up on Wikipedia, fundamental attribution error, which is that we see what other people do as reflecting their personality, but what we do as reflecting the local situation that we're in and vice versa. So what Mandeville is saying is that um, if we think well of ourselves and ill of our neighbors, these are equally unjust ways of thinking. And when we apprehend that others do or will enjoy what we think they don't deserve, it afflicts and makes us angry with the cause of that disturbance. Secondly, he goes on, that we are ever employed in wishing well for ourselves, everyone according to his judgments and inclinations, and when we observe something we like and yet are destitute of in the possession of others. It occasions first sorrow in us for not having the thing we like, so someone else has the new iPhone and we still have a flip phone from 1990. This sorrow is incurable while we continue our esteem for the thing we want but a self-defense is restless and never suffers us to leave any means untried how to remove evil from us as far and as well as we are able. Experience teaches us that nothing in nature more alleviates this sorrow than our anger against those who are possessed of what we esteem and want. This latter passion, therefore, we cherish and cultivate to save or relieve ourselves. At least in part from the uneasiness we felt from the first. Okay, we'll do a little bit more Mandeville, but bring in the Smith that I that I did send you, and bring in the Kant that I sent you tomorrow. The yeah, no, the um, page the the five or six page document on utility. I think Mandeville is just. I think he's using more colorful language than.